You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Midland, Texas. Redeemer Church is a gospel-centered missional family. If you would like to get more information or donate to this ministry, please visit www.redeemermidland.org. Hi, good morning. Thank you, Melody. Thank you, Jonathan, for leading the band. All right, well, good morning. Good morning. I'm testing. See, I'm just kind of, I'm seeing where we're at on a, on a holiday weekend uh, here this, this morning. I hope everybody's doing well. I am doing spectacular uh, because this is kind of my favorite time of the year. College football's back. Uh, that's right. My Red Raiders are 1-0. Take that, Murray State. Our starting quarterback may be out for the year, but hey, you know. And what's great, honestly, is also the Cowboys haven't started playing yet, so my soul hasn't been crushed yet by, by all of that. So, and it's rained. It's like I can just go down the list. I'm, I'm, I'm in a great spot. I'm loving it. Um, plus, I'm excited about we, we have a, a great passage to walk through together this morning, and uh, I'm excited about that too. So uh, for those of you who I haven't had the pleasure of meeting yet, my name is Jordan Strebeck. And I'm one of your non-staff elders here at Redeemer. Um, my wife, Brittany, and I have been married a little over 15 years. We got four kiddos, uh, fifth grade, second grade, first grade, and pre-K. I think I got all those right. Uh, so our lives are fun. Uh, we're plenty full. Uh, if you haven't met my wife yet, she's much cooler uh, than I am. I would suggest getting to know her before you get to know me. If you have kids... Chances are she's fed them goldfish or um, changed their diaper or pushed them around in the giant stroller of cuteness over uh, in Redeemer Kids. That's where she is right now, in fact. Um, but uh, yeah, so you, you should definitely get to know her. Jason Hatch, our, our, our normal teaching senior pastor, is uh, he's been traveling. And so uh, Jonathan pinch hit last week and I'm pinch hitting this week while Jason's been uh, getting some much needed R&R and also honing what I think is his true spiritual gift, which is making sure that he doesn't preach on holiday weekends in Midland. <laughs> he's nobody's, nobody's fool. All right. He's a sharp guy. So if you're new with us, just promise me you'll come back when the starter is in the game. Okay. Uh, come back next week, check it out. And, uh, and, 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 and do that before you make your final determination. All right, so we're going to go ahead and, and dive right in. Uh, we're in Matthew 22 this morning, and we're going to be continuing our uh, series on parables that we've been going through this summer. And this morning, we're going to be looking at the parable of the wedding banquet. Now, as a quick refresher, just on parables in general, we know that sometimes Jesus does teach pretty directly uh, but sometimes he uses parables to teach. As uh, Klein Snodgrass, who wrote one of the sort of definitive commentaries on the parables, likes to say that he, Klein Snodgrass says that direct communication is important for conveying information, but learning is more than information, especially when people think they already understand. And I love that, especially, that's especially, I think, relevant with this morning's parables. And so sometimes parables, it's like you can see them right away. You're like, oh, yep, I totally get this. I get where Jesus is going. Other times, it's maybe a little bit more uh, confusing. Sometimes, in fact, I feel like I read a parable and I feel about like I feel at an art gallery. You know, I'm like, I know, I know it's art and everybody else seems to get it. 
I'm just not 100% sure that I'm seeing what I'm supposed to be seeing. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, all right, just, just me. All right, you guys, you guys are all much more cultured than me. I like it. Um, but have you ever been to an art gallery with somebody that's kind of like pretentious and likes to act like they know about art? I don't know if you, any of y'all have ever been there, but I remember one time when we lived in Boston, we went to this art exhibit, and I can't even remember what we were looking at. It was like, you know, just a canvas with something on it, you know, a line or something. And they're like, mmm, you just feel his anger. And I'm like, yeah, 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 he's probably pretty ticked. Is it because of, of the way the line goes? Because he was like, yes, I think it's the commentary on Impressionism and modern takes on Impressionism. And I'm like, are we looking at the same... We're looking at the same painting here. I don't even, I, I, you know what, I, I give up. Give me like a picture of a cow, okay? I don't, I give up. But if you've ever looked at art with somebody who actually knows what they're talking about, who actually has taken the time to study art, it's a whole different ball game. Um, and actually, I have a, a, a dear friend who, who studied art in college and is actually a really gifted and talented painter himself. And man, I tell you what, Looking at art with Josh took on a whole new meaning. It took on a whole new life. And I think sometimes, so it is with parables, sometimes those truths are easy to spot and other times maybe a little bit less so. But when we really dig in, it's amazing what we'll find. It takes time, it takes work, but it's worth it. So here are a couple things that I, I want us to keep in mind as we delve into, into today's passage, and I think are generally helpful for looking at parables in general. First of all, everything that Jesus said has a designed and specific purpose. Okay, this isn't like a choose your own adventure kind of deal where you get to apply your own philosophy or your own politics or whatever makes you comfortable or uncomfortable and just kind of drape that over whatever framework you think Jesus has laid out. Now, Jesus had a specific intent for everything that he said. And so our job as the reader is to try as hard as we can to understand what Jesus is actually trying to communicate. So that's our goal. And one of the main ways that we need to do that is we need to make sure that we're looking at it in the proper context, okay? Um, because both scripturally and historically, context really, really matters. Um, I, like most of you, if statistics are correct, uh, a couple, maybe two months ago or so, went and saw Top Gun uh, Maverick and, uh, and was loving it. And a I, I, bunch of grown adults, I mean, this wasn't like opening night or something, but my buddy Chris and I went and saw this movie and the, the theater, still a couple weeks after release, was full of grown adults who were cheering at the movie. Uh, which couldn't hear them cheer, ironically. People cheered when Tom Cruise was like, welcome to Top Gun, we made this movie because we want you to enjoy. I mean, like people were cheering at everything. It was, it was, it was this adrenaline rush of an experience. And my wife and I went back a couple weeks later and saw it and she said, you know, I think when this comes out on video, if you skip a couple parts, I think our older boys would love this. And I was like, we don't tell me twice, all right? So when it came out a couple weeks ago, 
Uh, my eight-year-old, my 11-year-old, my 11-year-old's a complete, like, he loved, he knows all the, oh, that's an F-22, he's obsessed with jets. And so we sit down and we watch it and we're done. I'm like, what'd you guys think? And they're like, this is good. It's like, good? Are we watching, are we even watching the same movie? And they're like, no, it was great. It was awesome. It was awesome. It was great. It was good. They're like, dad, whoa, easy, easy, man. Take a chill pill. And, but the truth of the matter is they didn't have the context of the OG Top Gun. Highway to the Danger Zone doesn't mean anything to them. It's just a song, okay? It's not causing them to speed if it comes on the radio. They didn't get a lump in their throat when Iceman showed up. Boone just goes, who's that guy? Why ain't he talking? Not now, it's Iceman. They didn't understand when Goose's kids sat down and played Great Balls of Fire. They didn't, they didn't get any of that. To them, it was just an awesome movie about fighter pilots. To me, it was a validation of my childhood, all right? A walk down memory lane. That context really, really mattered. So what's the context here, both scripturally and historically? Well, for starters, let's set the stage. We're in Matthew 22. What's immediately preceded this in Matthew 21 Jesus has come into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry, um, and the Pharisees are already, they're all hot and bothered already. This hasn't been going the direction they want it to from the get-go. And then he goes into the temple, cleanses the temple, runs out the money changers. They're not real happy about that. Jesus, actually, in that same chapter, uh, Matthew says that the chief scribes and priests saw what Jesus did and how the people responded, and he says they were indignant. And then in that same chapter, Jesus is teaching in the temple and the Pharisees come in and basically call him out in front of everybody. Hey, by what authority do you teach, Jesus? As you can imagine, this didn't go well for them on account of Jesus being the omniscient creator of the world and a lot smarter than them. And so, of course, he, he mentally jujitsus them and that just makes them even more frustrated. And then Jesus starts to effectively call them out with a series of parables. First, we have the, the parable of the two sons. Then we have the parable of the tenants. And then we get to where we are today, the parable of the wedding banquet. So that's how we get to where we are in Matthew chapter 22, verse 1. Now let's go ahead and just read the passage. Make sure... We could, there we go. Now we're cooking. All right. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who were invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm and another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite the wedding feast, invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. 
But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. All right. Now, there's a lot to unpack here. Um, so we're going to ask ourselves a couple of questions. Look at a couple, three things. Okay. The first is, who was Jesus addressing with this parable? Okay. That's the first question. The second question is, what is he trying to communicate to them? And then the third thing, how does it apply to us today? As to question one, who was Jesus speaking to in this parable? Well, that one's actually pretty straightforward because Matthew gives us the answer earlier in the passage. With the parable of the tenants, he says that the chief priests and Pharisees perceived and knew that Jesus was talking about them and they didn't like it. Um, Jesus is, he's coming hard in the paint at, at the Pharisees, all right? His elbows are out and he is going to the rack hard and they are understandably not enjoying getting dunked on in public. So he's talking to the Pharisees. What is Jesus saying here? Now that's a little bit more complicated. So let's unpack the, var the various elements uh, that we see in this story. So for starters, a king is throwing a wedding banquet for his son. So this is a big deal, okay? It's, I think, hard for us in our culture to even understand how big of a deal this was because we're not a shame and honor culture. And the culture that Jesus would have been speaking into, that was extremely important in their culture. So for the king's son to have been getting married, this banquet would have been an all-out I mean, multi-day affair. Matt, you think royal weddings now are a big deal? This would have been relative to, to sort of the ev average everyday life. This would have been a huge deal. And it was all about honoring the king and the king's son and the bridegroom. So the king invites some of his subjects, presumably those who are of high enough status or are from families who are important enough to warrant and invite. This probably wasn't the riffraff of society here, but, it, but they don't come, which is, which is really, really odd, especially given what we know about the culture at that time. This would have been very offensive at best to the king and seditious at worst. So the king sends out servants again. Says, hey, remember, the, 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 the feast is on. I've done all this stuff to prepare it. Come on. But again, they don't come. And Matthew says, they paid the servants no attention and went off. So we really see four responses, four different buckets of responses, if you will, to the invitation to the banquet. The first bucket is those who went off. One went to his farm, the other went to his business. Now this jumped off the page at me because neither of those things is an explicitly bad thing. There's nothing wrong with running a farm. There's nothing wrong with running a business. In fact, in the right light and the right prioritization in life, those can be good, noble, even sanctifying things. But here, what's interesting is they are clearly misplaced on the totem pole of priorities. They're clearly too high. And what could have been a good thing actually causes these subjects 
to commit treason. Now, this is convicting to me because Satan's pretty crafty. And I think he knows that if he comes at me and he's like, hey, God's full of it. Go join the Taliban. I'm not going to be like, cool. All right, let's do it. Pack the bags. We're out of here. But if he comes at me and maybe tricks me little bit by little bit with half-truths into believing that things are more important than they are, that maybe my business is more important than it is, that maybe kids' sports are more important than they are. Maybe he can get me on those. Maybe he can convince me or you that any number of good things are actually better than the one who made those good things. And that's what we see here. And I think especially in a place like Midland or West Texas where, where work and hard work and, and all those things that actually should be good things can play an outsized role in our identity, we ought to keep an eye out for these things in our lives. They paid the servant no attention and went off. They were too busy. The rest of that group, well, the rest, they go full-on Leroy Jenkins, all right? They come blasting in here. This is like Anchorman in the alley. Brick killed a guy with a trident. This escalates so quickly, it's astonishing. It says, Matthew says that they seize the servants, they treat them shamefully, and then they kill them. It's like, whoa, that got out of hand very, very quickly. There's also some foreshadowing here. I, I think we, we can probably see that there's somebody else that we, we have the benefit of knowing the rest of this story, uh, that there's going to be someone else who was a servant from the king bringing good news, who was seized, treated shamefully, and ultimately killed. So at this juncture, the king in this parable, he's not going to stand for it. He's angry. He's not going to stand for this injustice. So there's a terminal consequence for those subjects. He sends his army and he, and, and, and he destroys the murderers and burns their city to the ground. This is a pretty big escalation from what we saw in the first two parables in this series of three. And it's serious, it's terminal, it's a crescendo. And I think at this point that might make some of you uncomfortable, this part of the parable. I think sometimes we get a little bit uncomfortable when Jesus isn't talking about love and peace. And we have these notions that we've gotten about Jesus, either from our culture or from our family or from, from whatever place you get them, where you might think Jesus looks more like a hippie or buddy Jesus than he does the righteous son of God. And that anything he says that doesn't look like it could be contained in a precious moments Bible maybe makes us just a little bit uncomfortable. But the truth of the matter is, if you've actually taken the time to study Jesus, you know that this, this righteousness, this wrath is a very real thing. It's not all uh, patty cakes and high fives. And this is a good example of that. This is serious. This is terminal. So after the king's done with that, he tells his messengers, he basically says, hey, we're already throwing this party, and it's not fitting that this banquet hall should be empty. Those guests that we invited, they weren't worthy of the invite anyway. So he tells his servants to go out to the main roads, basically where all the people were. Go out to the main roads, and he tells them to invite as many as you find. 
And then Jesus tells us that the servants went out and they found, they gathered all they found, both bad and good, and they filled the wedding hall. Both bad and good. See, these invites, they weren't premised on the worthiness of the recipients. And Jesus is very clear here, this is both bad and good. They were extended because the king had a party worth attending and he wanted to share that banquet with as many as possible. Catch that truth. These invitations were not extended because of the goodness of those invited, but because of the goodness of the one extending the invitations. So the wedding feast is on, and then in verse 11, the king comes in to look out over his guests. The original text here is theomai, which literally means to behold, to gaze, to contemplate. You can, you can easily picture this king looking out over all of the guests in his banquet hall, beaming with pride at this full room. But then he notices something isn't quite right. Now, this is just, this is a little bit heavy. So what we're going to do is we're going to work our way all the way through this, and then we're going to come back, all right? So in the midst of all these invited guests, both bad and good, one guest in particular catches the king's eye. And he asks him, he notices he's not wearing a wedding garment, and he says, friend, where is your wedding garment? Now, Jesus says the man was speechless. He gave no defense. Now, I know most of you, your kids would never sin, but mine from time to time have done so, okay? And those of you who aren't smiling or laughing just probably don't have kids yet. And usually when, 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 when I confront them with their sin, it's one of the litany of, you know, Hall of Fame excuses. Oh, I didn't know. Oh, I thought, I thought you meant I could have 18 gummy bears instead of five. I'm sorry, I thought I misunderstood the instruction. Or how about, he did it, he hit me first, or so-and-so's parents let them do it. You know, we get a lot of those in our house. But every now and then, when they're really, when you've got them just like dead to rights, when they know there's like, there's no wiggling out of this one, like, uh, like hand in the cookie jar, I'm nailed here. What do they do? Is that deer in the headlights look? They freeze, kind of look up at you, and they kind of look down, kind of just like, looking around like, is there any way? All the, all the exits are blocked. They're speechless, right? And so it was with this wedding guest. He was speechless. So the king punishes the man. The parable goes on to say that the attendants were commanded to bind him hand and feet and cast him into the outer darkness where Jesus says there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then he concludes saying, for many are called, but few are chosen. That's a lot. That's a lot to unpack. So let's go back and start with the wedding garment, okay? Let's talk about this. This probably isn't like being invited to some fancy wedding, like, hey, you got the invite to Ben Affleck and J-Lo's wedding, and it's black tie only, but you showed up, all you had was your Joseph A. Banks suit from the buy one, get 73 free sale, and so... They're like, no, man, you don't have the right cummerbund. You got you to piece out of here. It's not that kind of deal. In Charles Spurgeon's reading of the passage, he says that the guest would have been expected upon arrival to put on, in his words, the bridegroom's favors, the garment which, as a badge, marked him as an attendant at the wedding. 
So this is probably less akin to you not having the right tuxedo or nice enough clothes and more akin to you being asked to be a bridesmaid in the wedding party and they provide a dress that matches all the other bridesmaids and you go, ah, you know what? This white gown that I bought at Nordstrom's, I look great in it. And this is, I'm wearing it, I'm doing it, YOLO, I'm doing it, and you show up. That's more what we're talking about here. The point is this man attended the banquet but refused to wear the wedding garment. In Spurgeon's 1871 sermon on the matter, he actually says this, and I believe we have it on the screen. He talks about what the wedding garment represents. He says, the wedding garment represents anything which is indispensable to a Christian, but which the unrenewed heart is not willing to accept. Anything which the Lord ordains to be a necessary attendant of salvation against which selfishness rebels. Hence, it may be said to be Christ's righteousness imputed to us. For alas, many nominal Christians kick against the doctrine of justification by righteousness of the Savior and set up their own self-righteousness in opposition to it. To be found in Christ, not having our own righteousness, which is of the law, but having the righteousness, which is of God by faith, is a very prominent badge of a real servant of God. And to refuse it is to manifest opposition to the glory of God and to the name, person, and work of his exalted son. See, Spurgeon is making the point here that just as it was offensive to the king and ultimately very dangerous to the guest, to come and partake of the king's kindness and goodness while choosing his own attire over that of the bridegroom. So it is dangerous for us and offensive to God when his subjects prefer our own self-righteousness over that supplied by God through Christ Jesus. Don't let that pass you by. I hope that sinks in this morning because this is just as dangerous and poisonous to our souls as it was 2,000 years ago for the Pharisees. In fact, Jesus hammers home this very point as he closes. He says, many are called, but few are chosen. The Greek here for called is kletoi, which literally means to be invited. The word for chosen is electoi or elect, picked out. In this closing, Jesus reminds everyone who hears it just exactly who is responsible for salvation. It is not through our own doing or our last name or our status or our good deeds that we can be saved. It is Jesus who is doing the saving, not us. And the fact that Jesus used this specific language had to really irk the Pharisees. See, they had long believed that because of their heritage and uh, because of their special place that they had as the leaders of the Jewish religious establishment, that they were promised, or you could even argue they felt they were owed a place amongst God's elect. That's the same language they had used about themselves for generations. They were, they were due. 
They were God's chosen people, his electoi. And Jesus here is forcefully reminding them with this series of parable, parables and putting an excellent exclamation point at the end. Just to remind them that none of those things will earn them a place at the banquet. And nor will they for us. It doesn't matter if you went through confirmation class. Doesn't matter if your dad and his dad and his dad's dad and every granddad ever in your family's lineage was a deacon at First Baptist Church in whatever town, Texas. Or if this is your first time in a church, none of that matters. It is Jesus who is doing the saving. Now, I don't know about you, but being reminded of that truth humbles me, reminds me that it's not about me, but it also encourages me Reminding me that it's not about us, it's not about our lineage or our righteousness or lack thereof. It's about Jesus. It's about his righteousness. After all, in this parable, think about this. It doesn't matter how nice or how fashionable the man's wedding garments were. It just matters that they weren't the bridegroom's wedding garments. As I've said before, this is good news for you and it's good news for me because if this isn't about our successes and our best efforts then it also won't be about our failures or our shortcomings either and that's good news so where does that leave us where does that leave us that's our our third question this morning what is how should this apply to our lives what action is Jesus trying to move us toward this morning well, a couple of things. One, the invite we see in this parable is free. It's widely available. It's taken out to the main roads. And as we're reminded at the end, it is God who does the saving. So one action that we're called to in this parable is the action of spreading the invitation. As Jesus reminds us in the parable of the sower and also at, at the end of this parable, what happens with that invitation, it's, it's, not, it's not up to us. It's not a matter of sharing the gospel so in such a great way that nobody can, they just have no choice but to become a believer. That's the Holy Spirit's role, but, but God has given us a role in spreading this invitation, and so we ought to have some urgency about us. So I think the first thing is pretty simple. Tell people about Jesus. That might seem kind of elementary, but when was the last time you told somebody about Jesus? When was the last time you said, hey, there's this invite to this awesome banquet and anyone can come? I'll give you a hint. You can start next week because Jason will be back in the pulpit. You can invite a friend to church. Let's have some urgency about us with that invite. And then the second thing, when the king invites you, accept the invitation. Accept the invitation. Don the wedding garments and enjoy the feast. Enjoy the banquet. It's simple. It's not easy, but it's simple. Don't believe the lie like those first two that there's something better out there. And go off to your business or your farm. Don't thumb your nose in rebellion 
at the king like the rest of those invitees. And don't choose your own wardrobe over the wedding garment like the third kind of response. We want to be squarely in that last fourth response. We want to be amongst those who accept the invitation, don the wedding garment, and enjoy the feast. The band's going to come and lead us in a couple songs. And as they do that, I would invite you to come just as you are and put on not your righteousness, your resume of past things done, good or bad, but that of Jesus and rest in the peace that comes with it. And ultimately, for those of you who have already accepted the invitation and donned the wedding garment, enjoy the feast. Fellowship with your maker. Enjoy his presence. Build a relationship with him and then invite others to come with you. As we close, we're going to close in singing uh, two songs and we're going to have some time for a response. And I would, I would say, uh, and band, y'all can go ahead and come up. I did like twice say, you know, as the band comes up. So I, you know, I, I can say that because I'm sometimes in the band. You're always like, is it dizzy? Is it early? Well, second service will nail it. But I would encourage you, if, you've, if you have never acknowledged your sin, confessed that sin, and accepted Jesus as your Savior, I would invite you into that this morning. Uh, we have staff that will be at the back that can talk to you, uh, that can pray with you. And I would say that irrespective of where you've been or what you've done, this invitation is open to you this morning. As Jesus said in this parable, out on the main road, bad or good, this invitation is for you. Accept it. Know that in spite of our past, of our failure to uphold God's perfect standard, that Jesus came in our stead. He lived a perfect life. He fulfilled the very law that you and I could not and willingly went to the cross to take our punishment, to take our wrath that we deserved in our place. Then three days later, Jesus rose from the grave, conquering sin and death itself. And as Jesus communicated in this very parable, that invitation is now open to you and me. Don't let it pass you by. All we have to do is put on the garment of Christ's righteousness by asking him to save us. And if you've never put your faith in Jesus this morning, I would say, don't delay. Go now, accept now. In an ending, Charles Spurgeon ended his sermon on this parable 250 years ago this way. And I figure if it was good enough for Spurgeon, it's good enough for me. He said, yield yourselves to the Savior and believe in him, for he that believeth shall be saved. It was true 250 years ago, it was true 2,000 years ago, and it's true today. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Church. If you want to connect with us at Redeemer, we would love for you to visit us at a service in person or visit us online at www.redeemermidland.org.